This is Andy Crouch, and welcome to the Beer Edge Podcast. With his signature long hair, faded trucker hat, and baby face, Ben Howe could easily pass for a newbie assistant brewer, which is what he once was. You could also be forgiven for carding him before serving him a drink. Despite his youthful appearance, Ben has a long history of brewing experience under his belt. He has brewed with some of the world's best, cutting his teeth under Will Myers at Cambridge Brewing Company, before opening his own short-lived place in Lightenman Ales. His brewing travels have taken him from Boston, to the rural coast of Denmark, and then to the West Coast and Wayfinder Beer in Portland, Oregon. For Ben, everything had been building to this moment, the one where he leveraged his years of hard work, training, and study to help open a place of his own. He and his wife and business partner Carolina were ready. And then COVID-19 hit. A pandemic definitely wasn't in the business plan. Earlier this year, Ben and Carolina planned to open their new brewery and taproom, Otherlands Beer, in the town of Bellingham, Washington. COVID substantially delayed everything, from permitting to construction and sourcing necessary items as seemingly easy as hand soap. So Ben and Carolina had to do things themselves. They built the taproom's bar. They brought in family to help paint and finish other odds and ends. They stressed over everything, from the small to the substantial. After COVID delayed their target reopening date of early spring, Otherlands finally opened to the public in late June. I've known Ben for a long time. He's one of the good guys who made the Boston beer scene a special place in the late aughts and early 2010s. He has long reminded me of a younger Dan Paquette, whose Pretty Things Beer and Ale project helped usher in an exciting new era in Boston's sleepy craft beer scene. Bright, friendly, always with a wide and even slightly goofy smile that brightens every encounter, Ben is supremely dedicated to the science of making better beer. He's constantly seeking to improve himself and his craft. I spoke with Ben a few weeks back, before Other Lens opened, and you can hear the anxiety and the concern of the unknown in his voice. And if you've ever wondered who would dare open a new brewery in the midst of all this chaos, let me introduce you to Ben Howe of Otherlands Beer. I can't wait to try his beers, but until then, here's our conversation. How are things going? Like, you know, tell me about what the plan was and then how, how the plan has shifted and evolved. It's, it's been weird. And, and to be honest, like we don't, we don't entirely know how much it's, it's shifted and evolved. The, we, so originally the plan, um, once we decided on, on Bellingham and, and what our business plan was, Hey, we are fully embracing the small brew pub model. We are going to try to sell 75 to 80% of our beer over the counter in pints to people. We are keeping the place to pretty much 50 seats. We're going to have food so that people will stay here and continue to eat from us and not go out to food carts. Um, like we, we want people to stay and have their third beer. Mm-hmm. We want to create a cozy little environment that's different. Um, we don't want it to feel industrial. Um, nothing against that aesthetic, but sure. we just both, both of our, our time in Europe, living there and working there and just, just exploring and, and finding all, other different ways of, of experiencing and having a beer culture. Um, we just really fell in love with this kind of guest house, cozy, uh, cafe kind of feel. And so we, we kind of planned around that and said, hey, here's here's how we're going to make our money. Here's what the uh, the projections would look like. We'll also sell some to-go beer, and that would just be um, bottle condition, saison, and stuff like that. And then we'd do growlers of IPA and uh, and lager, just fresh-filled growlers, good to go. Growlers because I think finally people recognize that the growler is a temporary vessel. Right. And they don't seem to treat a crowler that way, and I fucking hate crowlers anyways. <laughs> um, anyway, so, I, so we were like, okay, this is the plan. Um, and we, we were set to open, uh, pretty much mid April. Um, but you know, things kind of started getting kind of hairy at the beginning of March and then in mid March, more or less everything obviously ground to a halt. And so we had a couple of pieces of construction that we absolutely had to do that we weren't allowed to do. Um, one of them pretty much we had to put in roof access for a hood fan, which despite mm-hmm. months of, uh, of plan review, uh, in the fall, never came up until the winter and they were like, Oh, by the way, you need this thing, which isn't unreasonable. I just wish we knew before because it would have changed how we approached it. So instead we were like, okay, we got to find a fabricator. He's got to fucking build stairs, a catwalk, like all of this, where are we going to get the money? Okay, we'll do this. We figured it out. 
And we went through like another like month of plan review for this extra thing. And just pretty much as soon as it was approved, they, everything got shut down. And then our fabricator couldn't get his parts. And the people who had to install it were the only people who could install it because they built the building. And they, they had to make a roof penetration in order to anchor it. Um, they couldn't do any work for a month. So yeah. everything just stopped. And uh, we kept doing things inside. Um, so Carolina and I um, pretty much finished painting the place and we put together a bar rail a bit. Um, we, uh, we had a friend or we had a, a contractor friend who put in the finished stairs for us and then uh, we did the finishing. So we sanded it and, and did everything else mm-hmm. and finished and stained and, and realized how terrible we are at it. <laughs> um, so I, I did the staining. It took me like I sanded everything one day and then I stained everything. And then we looked at it and we're like, this looks blotchy and awful. So then I spent three days re-sanding everything down and then Carolina stained it and it looked just the same. And so we, <laughs> we said, fuck it. And, uh, and put sealer and uh, finish on it at, at the, uh, the urging of our landlord. And, uh, it actually looks really good now. There you go. <laughs> so hand, we don't... Handcrafted. Yeah. Handcrafted. Um, so yeah, we pretty much just did everything that we could do that we knew how to do. Um, the problem is there were all these things, like, obviously like we couldn't continue with our construction and also hit us in that we couldn't we couldn't hire like we, we still had plans on paper for what we wanted to do, but like we couldn't proceed in any hiring because we didn't know when we were going to open and we couldn't kind of like promise jobs to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also kind of get caught in this. We can't get help from anyone's zone. So all of our expenses continue, like our, our rent continued and oh, okay. we're still using utilities, not the same you know utilities as when it'd be open, but like our rent is due every month. Right. And we budgeted for, you know, a little bit, but not, these extra months of just spinning our wheels and doing nothing. And so we, you know, applied for every single federal program and um, nothing came through no. obviously because we didn't have a payroll. Right. We no never revenue. hired That's anyone. Right. And so we couldn't prove it. And it, we got a thousand dollars from the, uh, um, from the idle grant. Yep. Where they give you the grant while they review your application. And then they were like, no. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, so that, that happened. And then, it, it's a new building. Um, our landlord is um, uh, built the building, essentially, and half of it is his uh, his space, his studio, and uh, and workshop. And so, because of that, because they're um, still working the other side, they really couldn't cut us a break on on rent. And so we just kind of okay. Well, where are we going to get this from? And um, I don't know. It, it became very uncertain. We we started drinking a lot in April, yeah. um, <laughs> just trying to figure out what the hell we were going to do and kind of came up with a couple of contingency plans and then we kind of got real scared when we noticed that like so in town there's there's tons of great breweries and uh two of our favorites are chuck nut um who just makes outstanding lager beer mm-hmm. and structures who makes a bunch of other stuff that's great great saisons great ipas um and to see those two breweries just have entirely different realities hit them so chuck nut does tons and tons and tons of draft beer they just send out their pills and their vienna and it's wonderful and every bar carries it and it's great they haven't uh, – I, I talked to one of their brewers a week ago, and he had just started brewing again. Oh, they wow. didn't brew a batch of beer for two months. Yeah, that's crazy. And they laid everyone off. And James, who had a uh, – at Structures, who had a tap room, um, where he, which was usually pretty crowded, but it was like a 30-person tap room, and then he was canning, and he was sending out um, he was sending out kegs, just switched entirely to canning, and he's never been busier. He is just brewing like crazy. Right. And he brought on more staff and just – and it's weird because they're, they're both outstanding breweries. Um, they they both have po- very popular followings, and one has been dead in the water, and one has just been cranking. Right. And so we we looked in it and we thought, well, what if nobody wants to come in? Like like when this when this uh, when we go to phase two or whatever, like you know, are we gonna switch? Everyone is saying, oh, you guys switch to take out beer, you guys switch to take out food. Well, no one's ever had our beer, no one's ever right. had our food. Why is anyone ever gonna want it? Um, and so we kind of came up with a whole bunch of contingency plans, trying to figure out what to do. Um, I'm still trying to get the old filler that, uh, that I was using at Idle Hands with Chris, which is a three, three, four head um, counter pressure filler. And the idea was, okay, well, we can fill finished lager beer into it. Mm-hmm. Um, we can fill growlers on it by just switching out the stopper. We can do counter pressure growlers and we can use it um, just, you know, dial the pressure all the way off it. We can just do bottle conditioned beer. So we can do everything on this and we need to transition to figuring out um how are we going to package a ton of beer I, but we don't 
our economics are not really built around it. We, we don't have room for mobile canning to come in. We don't have room for mobile bo bottling to really come in. We don't have room for storage of that glass. And then we started looking at glass prices and glass had become more scarce and the yeah. bottles that we were looking at, we couldn't find. And then all these other things we couldn't find, uh, everything from chest freezers, because everyone in America bought a chest freezer to store That's... their meat in. Um, <laughs> like this whole weird list of items that all of a sudden went missing, like soap dispensers that we needed for our uh, health inspection, uh, which we eventually were able to find. Um, it got really, really weird. And so luckily it pretty much we're, we're, we don't know what to expect. We, we know that we, we're cutting back our, our estimates in terms of how much we're going to sell. We're cutting back our labor scheduling. We're cutting back our hours that we're going to be open. Um, and then we're planning on having to do a lot more um, filling of growlers because we weren't able to get the filler yet. So we're not able to do counter pressure filling glass. Um, so we're just going to do a ton of growlers, probably prep them ahead of time. And at this point, like, okay, we have an idea of what, what we'll need to do if we switch over to just like doing like 50% sales and growlers. We have kind of contingency plans for, okay, what if nobody wants to come in? Like maybe we have to let go of a lot of the staff. Um, we don't know. Um, we bought a ton of stuff for doing to-go food in case we have to switch that way. But we only have so much wiggle room. Like our whole model is built around the selling people beer over the counter. And right. we can we can sell a ton of to-go beer, but we can't – we're not going to be able to transition into a totally different business model yeah. um, with the space we have. I mean maybe <laughs> – maybe given enough time we could. So we're just we're just kind of banking on, okay, what if we cut down the amount of beers that we're selling over the counter and we're selling more growlers and we're selling pierogies to go instead of, you know, 100% of it in-house, what does that look like? And it, it still works, but... Yeah, it's just it's, it's, a totally, we'll it's a totally different model. Do you have any outdoor space that you can rely on or...? We do. So we have we have a small patio that previously we would have set up. Um, so this is actually kind of lucky. So our, our occupancy is technically 72, although we've been thinking of the whole place as 50. Mm -hmm. And then there's outside, we had about 12 seats on the patio. Um, we're going to set up two patio tables outside. And because of the way our, our space upstairs, even though it's pretty cozy, it's spread out a little bit. Um, we're able to put uh, enough tables in here. We can we can do our 50% occupancy and, and the place doesn't you're still six feet between the tables. Okay. Um, everything's everything's fine. Um, and then we can also apply to kind of modify our outside patio. Uh, we were just talking about this, our, our patio permit, so that we can put people possibly in where some of the street parking is instead mm -hmm. of tables there, right. which would give us some more capacity. But, I, I mean, the, the biggest uncertainty to us is are people going to want to go out? Um, right. On At 10 a.m. on Friday, we went to phase two in this county, and people, um, people I, I heard, I was, I was going to the hardware store and I heard someone say, did you hear we're in phase two? We're in phase two. And people started talking about it. And then I got a text like 10 minutes later from another brewery being like, we're in phase two, we can open. Like everyone is very excited. Breweries quickly like opened up, opened up the tap rooms and restaurants were opening up. But I, that's, that's all just kind of anecdotal seeing what was going on around. I don't know. I don't know if people have full houses at this point or, yeah. uh, or what's I, up I, or if people are going to want to keep doing that. I think they've been pent up for a while, especially with the good weather. And as someone who was walking around the seaport in downtown Boston today <laughs> and happened across Trillium and its new patio and it's, you know, it oh. opened today, it was packed. You know, it, it, oh, it, awesome. had, it had people in there and, uh, you know, there are no, you know, Harpoon's doing the same thing here. You know, mm -hmm. they're all working off of a reservation system and you uh -huh. can't get reservations for days. So whether those people show or what <laughs> happens and how, you know, they're uh -huh. sort of limited in the amount of time they can be there. It's 90 minutes or something. But, you know, it does appear that people are going back. And I certainly have been very cautious over the last couple of months. And thankfully, I can afford to be in the sense of, you know, my job mm -hmm. Can I can kind of work from anywhere, but you know I got to tell you the first second you see somebody sitting at an outdoor patio having a beer, the first mm -hmm. on a sunny day, it is it is just as big a draw as being in a beer garden in Germany and seeing a tall <laughs> you know slender glass of Hefeweizen go by and you immediately say I need one of those. <laughs> so I, I well. remain I remain hopeful that I think people will. You know, I, you know, whether or not, you know, we can make the economics work and, you know, hopefully mm -hmm. people aren't, are, you know, can act like responsible adults, but I have, sure. I have some faith that, you know, people are going to want to come out to places and especially even, even new places that they haven't experienced mm -hmm. before. I think they're going to be, I think they're going to be excited about that. That's, that's what we're hoping. I mean, that's definitely among the list of our anxieties um, of, Hey, like people are going to want to go to the places they miss. Like I certainly do. Right. Um, 
but but are they going to want to go try something new if they're only going out so much? I don't know. I, people seem excited. We had um, we put up our, our wooden sign uh, maybe a month ago, and once that happened, neighbors just started walking by and talking. We, we've mm-hmm. met like the whole neighborhood um, and been telling people the date we're open and all that stuff. So that's going really well. But it's uh, yeah, I, what we've been telling the people that we've hired and interviewed is this is going to be a roller coaster. Like obviously like right. opening a new business is going to, is crazy. Anyways, you don't quite know what to expect, but this is extra crazy. So you got to be ready to roll with the right. fact that your shifts, you might get a lot more shifts, a lot less shifts. Um, we, we might lay everyone off and who knows? Like yeah. we, uh, yeah, it's deeply uncertain more, more than we were expecting to be uncertain about it. Um, well, let's back up and, and sort of talk a little bit about, your background and, and, and the road that got you here. Um, because it's, you know, while anybody who meets you thinks you sort of look, you know, like a, like a young kid, long hair, like young, you got a very youthful, you know, visage. Um, (laughs) but you've been, you've been at this a while and have worked at some, some pretty heavy places doing some pretty interesting stuff. So sort of talk to me a little bit about your beer origin story. Where did that start? Um, more or less, uh, at, at Cambridge brewing, like I was home brewing before that. Um, and I got a, a job right, well, I got a job busting tables right out of college at a Northampton brewery and, uh, Donald, who was an assistant brewer at the time, uh, he let me come in and kind of shadow him a little bit and it was awesome. And at the same time, uh, Will, who I had applied or I just sent my resume when I was in college and asked, Hey, are you looking for an intern? Um, he had said, Oh yeah, I'm not hiring anyone, but, uh, you know, I'll keep resume mm-hmm. on file. And so the summer after I graduated, I just got an email from him. I was living back in Western Mass, and he said, hey, I got a job for someone to deliver and wash and fill kegs and cut pumpkins, you know, come interview. So I went and I, I got the gig at CBC when I was 22. And, um, yeah, just worked there for four years as a brewer, um, learned from Will and Megan and Kevin there, and just it, it, within about a month, was just absolutely head over heels in love with the place and brewing. Um, and then – kept homebrewing the whole time um and somewhere around my third year there uh became arrogant enough to think that i could make my own beer and that people <laughs> would like it and uh and had a bottle of Deus, and that was the that was the inspiration of just having a beer to champagne and being like this is this is crazy why is no one in the u.s make this and and why is it forty dollars a bottle mm-hmm. ah, i can make it for twenty dollars a bottle so that people like me can afford it which is I still stand by that, uh, that ethos, <laughs> but, uh, it's not, it's not quite that easy. Uh, <laughs> I know, I know, th- I know this is a subject that has been hotly debated even between you and I over the many years, but certainly tell the, tell the listeners the story of enlightenment. Uh, like from, uh, from the beginning or from, uh, yeah, just, uh, to, just how you came up with the idea and, and what its execution was and, and, you know, it, and how it eventually <laughs> turned out. So, yeah, so um, Will Myers, uh, my mentor at CBC, had recommended uh, that I pick up a bottle of Deus. Um, I think it was like for Valentine's Day or something like that. And I picked it up and I split it with my girlfriend at the time. And I was just blown away. I couldn't believe that there was a beer like that and that that the champagne method was used in beer and and just how delicate and effervescent and just just out of this world that beer was. And so I I just had it on my mind and I... I uh, I brewed it at home or I brewed a beer to champagne at home for uh, Barack Obama's inauguration um, to celebrate with. And we had this big party called uh, Brocktoberfest. And so we had this <laughs> big party and we were uh, just celebrating. We had this bottle for the inauguration in January. Um, and I thought it was really cool. It was such an exciting process. Will and I went out and we got some uh, liquid nitrogen from the lab above us and used that for degorging, which was crazy <laughs> and not at all how you should do it. Um, so anyways, that was, it was kind of in the back of my mind. And then I went to, I can't remember if it was a craft brewers conference or if it was, uh, it was a beer festival. I think it might've been the, uh, the beer fest down at the seaport, mm-hmm. um, with the Alstroms. And I ran, I got into a conversation with this guy who worked for, uh, who worked for duck rabbit at the time, uh, Ryan Merriweather, although I didn't know who he was at the time. Right. And we were talking, he was like, Oh yeah, I got married. And I was thinking about having, uh, day use for everyone at the wedding for the toast, but it's $40 a bottle. Yep. No way. So just me and my wife had it. And that kind of got the wheels turning. And I was like, wait, why, why can't someone make this for $20? Like $20 is an expensive beer, but like, and, and give, give some, time, give some time frame here. When was this? 
Oh, sorry. That was uh, that was 2009. Right. So this um, is, I mean, today, $20 for a bottle of beer might seem still a little high, but people are more accustomed to that. But yeah, this is more than a decade ago. Yeah. Yeah. I guess beer, <laughs> I guess it has gotten more expensive. Um, yeah. Well, I, and still, I think $20 is a, is a hell of a lot, but um, yeah, $40 was, was crazy. It, so I, I had this notion that like, well, what, what if I, what if I did this? What, and so I started homebrewing it and like testing it and, and coming up with this idea and I shared it with Will and like, it was very scary. And I was like, Hey, I'm thinking about like doing this professionally, like, like starting a small business, um, uh, starting a small business and, uh, and doing this, like, here's, you know, what if I was able to find like a, a barrel or a barrel and a half system and he embraced it and said, yeah, you should do this. Like I've, I've had the bearded champagne you made and like, this is, this is worth pursuing. It's crazy, but you should do this. And I wrote the worst possible business plan. I can't <laughs> imagine. I, I actually shared it with Carolina when we first met because she was in business school. Um, and it's, it's insanely laughable. <laughs> uh, so I, I wrote a business plan and uh, presented it to, to Will and uh, his wife, uh, Cindy and, she just tore it apart uh, as it deserved <laughs> to be. Um, but, but then I, I kind of went, you know, I made a bunch of changes and then moved forward with it. And I saved about $40,000 um, just busing. Oh, not, I wasn't busing tables at the time, bartending and serving and brewing. And just because I, I was also working as a bartender at CBC, which was awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, just saved a ton of money and then hit up a couple of friends and some family and said, hey, can, can you guys help me with a little bit here? Just loans. And put together enough to find a space to buy a barrel and a half system um, and to get a couple of wine, variable volume wine fermenters that were three barrels each and have a friend weld some triclover stuff onto them and set up in this garage in Lowell and uh, started brewing there and didn't pay myself (laughs) because I couldn't. um, And just kept working at CBC. I stopped working there as as a brewer. Um, I was just bartending about three nights a week um, and then was there pretty much every other night at in Lowell and was making this beer to champagne and, and everyone bought my first batch and uh, nobody bought my second batch. And I don't know if it was because uh, nobody liked it um, or because it was still an 18 to $20 bottle and everyone went out and bought one or two mm-hmm. and it's an 18 or $20 bottle and I didn't know what to do. And so I was planning on making a bunch of different beer to champagnes. Um, and instead I was like, well, why don't I just brew a Cezanne, mm-hmm. something else that I really love that I can bottle condition because I didn't have a fill. I just had a wine filler. I was planning on doing everything bottle conditioned. And I didn't have kegs. Um, and so I made a, a, a very hoppy Cezanne and called it a farmhouse IPA and people ate it up <laughs> people bought a ton of that beer. Um, and then it, it kind of took off from there, but it took off in the sense that I was brewing as frequently as I possibly could. And I was, I was selling the, uh, I was selling the beer to champagne. It was on shelves for like sixteen to eighteen dollars, and uh, uh, the saisons were on the shelf for like nine to twelve dollars. And I was making enough money to buy more malt and to pay the rent and everything else, and uh, not enough to pay myself. And very quickly, <laughs> was starting to get very frustrated, um, and didn't know anything about fundraising or how to look for money or find an investor or anything like that. And after about a year and a half, I didn't know what to do and. Then I ran into uh, to Chris Tkach, who was um, who was running, you know, owns Idle Hands, and he told me that he was having trouble running the brewery and running his business. And I was like, "Whoa, I am definitely having trouble with that." And I'm thinking of tossing in the towel or something. And we got to talking and decided that we would team up. And um, ended up, uh, I ended up selling all my equipment, and we bought uh, two fermenters with it. He bought a bigger system, um, a five-barrel system that he bought, and he bought some 10-barrel fermenters. And we, yeah, kind of became a team. I did the brewing for Idle Hands. Uh, he did the sales and the distribution and all of that. And we got to keep our separate brands so I could still do Enlightenment and he could do uh, Idle Hands. And it worked out great for another two years until Steve Wynn came along and kicked us out. Yeah, so. that's right. The casino came in and uh, knocked, <laughs> yeah. knocked down that property. Yes, and, and thank goodness because they put up that beautiful, beautiful building. Yes, and uh, well, and everyone seems to have gone on to to bigger and better things, and you are no longer <laughs> toiling by hand riddling bottles off of a one and a half barrel system and trying no, to make that no. make that finance work. 
Yeah, it was, you know, I know you and I have talked about it. Like there are another a number of other people who, when I proposed the plan, were like, that's insane. You you can't possibly do that. You'll never make any money. And I was like, yeah, but no, it'll work. Um, yeah, it didn't work. You had such passion, though. I, I, I have such great <laughs> respect. I mean, you were, how old were you when you when you started Enlightenment? Uh, 27, Okay, I think. And you had, like you just, that. you had like a, an air about you that you were just like, you were going to conquer the world and, and do that. And like, it was literally nobody else, you know, people talk about sour beer or whatever, barrel age, whatever you want. And, you know, in the early days of that, you still to this day, may be one of the only brewers in the country to really try that project. Oh, there's a very good reason. <laughs> like, um, I'm trying to remember who it was. Somebody, um. Uh, I'm trying to remember who called me a oh, burial um, brewer at burial called me a couple months ago um, because they were doing a beer to champagne and we got to talking about, about how to do it. But it, I had the same, same thought you just brought up that nobody does this. Right. Nope. I mean, it, it's hard. It's really hard and it's hard to get good at. Um, and I'm not totally sure that a lot of people want to buy it, even though it's a really beautiful, interesting beer. Yeah, the beer, beer. the beer was fantastic, as were your your saisons and and the beers you brewed. And I sadly, it's probably been many years since I my last bottle, but I kept one for quite a few years before I consumed it. And it was just, it was a great project. But then it was great to see you at Idle Hands. And then from Idle Hands, what did you do next? Because you know, in the life of Ben, you, it's not point A to point P to point C in nice easy order. You always have to do things sort of the hard way. Oh, it's been weird. Yeah, uh, so. I guess so. Um, Steve Wynn came along, um, and they were they're building their casino uh, in Everett. Um, and Chris and I had had known that they were looking to buy it, and he had been looking for another place to to move Idle Hands to. Um, and I think we we kind of generally had a different vision of what we wanted to do next. He wanted a bigger place and to do more production, and I always wanted to go back to brew pub brewing. Mm-hmm. Um, and my friend John Gilman, who just opened Brado he and I had talked about opening a place forever because we used to have the Brocktoberfest parties and he would make a ton of food and I would brew the beer for it. And we just worked really great together and were good friends and loved entertaining. And so we started planning out kind of a project of our own, not knowing what it would be, you know, Hey, that would be the eventual next step. So anyways, then, then the building got bought and we found out that we had to leave and we didn't have a place yet. And Chris was uh, fortunate enough to move his tanks to, uh, um, to night shift, they were incredibly gracious and allowed him to brew there on their system, um, which ended up really well while well, he found a new place. And while that was happening that same week, I got an email from my friend Anders Kissmeyer, who I had brewed with, uh, at enlightenment and who I had met when I was working as an assistant brewer at Cambridge brewing company. Um, and he's a, uh, he's a Danish brewmaster, um, a good friend of Will Myers. Um, and so he sent me this email saying, Hey, do you know anyone who's looking to work at this, this brewery in rural Denmark? They're looking for an American. If you know anyone, please, please pass along their information. And I've had this long, uh, infatuation with the idea of going to Europe and, and, and brewing there and finding out why their beers taste different. Why, why do Belgian beers brewed in Belgium taste so distinct? The same thing about German beers. Like why, what, what is different? What is going on that is so distinct? Um, why and and i thought i would never have the opportunity to do it and then all of a sudden this thing fell into my lap and i to be honest with you i've i've been afraid uh before that i was very anxious and and oddly afraid of foreign travel um i had been to europe for the first time a year before um my dad was going over there for a conference and uh in in uh, amsterdam or maybe no it was in brussels and i was like well you know what i've I would love to to join you there. And then my brother was like, that would be interesting too. So we all kind of went over and I had this like very intense sense of anxiety for most of the time I was there of I'm in this other place. The rules are different here. The language is different here. I'm going to do something wrong. I'm going to get lost. I'm not going to know what to do. I, I, I can't quite put my finger on it, but it was this, this being out of water anxiety. And so when this opportunity came along, I had this notion of, Hey, here's an opportunity to, go find out what European brewing is about. Also, here's an opportunity to go live in a totally different place. Here's what it's like to be a foreigner. Um, and here's an opportunity to, to travel and try to confront this feeling of being a fish out of water. And so I went over there for a week to do like a just kind of long interview and, and get to know the place. And uh, 
it was it, it was overwhelmingly scary again <laughs> for me but it, it just seemed it was in such a beautiful place it was in this um very rural part of denmark which is not a very big country so it's still an hour away from the uh the second biggest city um but there there was like a hundred people that lived in the village and it was this little farmhouse brewery like overlooking the sea between there and uh in sweden um and i just I ended up taking the job and moving there in September of 2015 and living in this little thatched roof house and, uh, and working with the sweetest, kindest people who hadn't brewed professionally before. Um, and it was, it was one of the most challenging things I've ever done. Uh, but it was so incredibly fulfilling, um, in so many ways. Uh, it definitely conquered the fear of travel. Uh, one right. of the nice things. Yeah. One of the nice things about it was, um, so my employers, so the Danish work week, I think is 36 hours. And I, when we were negotiating the salary and everything, I said like, this is not a 36 hour a week job. This is a, like 60 hour a week job. If I'm the head brewer, um, why don't you pay me the amount that we're going to agree upon? And then you let me take a long weekend once a month and I can go travel and go see other places. And so I tried to do that as much as I could and went to, to Belgium. Um, and, uh, I went to Germany and, and England and, just met tons of other people and uh, just met as many brewers as I could and just tried to talk as much as I could and just try to wander around cities alone and, and get to know what it's like to be a foreigner and just explore, explore, explore. And it, it was incredibly fulfilling. It was, it was wonderful. Um, and then through those weird travels and wanderings, I ended up meeting a couple of people. Um, I was able to, through knowing Yvonne uh, debates at uh, Brasserie de la Seine, he had, he said, oh, you know, I'm not hiring interns or anything like that, um, but you should talk to um, Thierry. And so I ended up uh, going to France and um, I just, I, well, I went to Brussels and then I <laughs> rented a car and drove to France and met him. And uh, he said, yes, yes, I'll give you an internship uh, in April when you're, when you're done uh, a year from now, when you're done working in Denmark. And, um, <laughs> but there was some, some, uh, something was lost in translation about where I was going to sleep that night. Um, and so he's like, Oh, I'm sorry. We're having house guests. You know, we can't put you up. <laughs> and so I was like, Oh, where should I go? Oh, go get a hotel in, in this, in this town, Kessel. And uh, I went there and uh, speak extremely small amount of French mm -hmm. um, just from high school and uh, ended up sleeping in my car on the side of a mountain <laughs> and just having this wonderful time um, going into bars and being laughed at by the town's inhabitants um, but yeah, it, it was really, really great. And then, so I did an internship with him. And then also when I was, uh, when I was traveling, um, with a good friend of mine who had also worked at Cambridge Brewing Company, Alden Mahoney, he was working at a, uh, an organic sheep farm in Northern Germany. And, uh, so we took a week and decided to travel through, uh, Bavaria with the, the end goal being to go to Oktoberfest on opening day. And that was awesome and, and crazy and just a totally surreal experience but the most uh, eye-opening part and the most life-changing part was we were we had been in bavaria for a couple of days and I, I sent a message to dan Paquette and i was like hey where should we go and he said oh forget bavaria go to franconia and i was like, okay well where where and he sent mm -hmm. me a list of like 100 places and i was like i've got a day where should i go and he said oh go to this place munchenbach like, mm -hmm. this is where to go first and so we pulled in and we didn't know, but they were on vacation. They were closed, but they were still working. And so their cafe was closed. And uh, Stefan, the owner, came out. My friend, um, my friend Alden speaks German. And they talked for a little bit. And he basically said, oh, you guys are brewers. So, uh, you know, I'll get you a beer and we can talk for 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. And so he came out and he poured us some of his lager beer. And after, you know, several days of drinking beer in Bavaria, I thought I had had the, the most incredible lager beer possible I, I, it was totally different than than drinking it in america and it was just everything was rich and beautiful and just bright and then we had his beer and i just i was like what have we been drinking for the last week <laughs> like this i've never had anything like it it was just it was so 10 dimensional and just it was so much bolder and bigger and yeastier and it, it was so eye-opening and then and then we gave him the list that dan Paquette had given us um and said Oh, well, here's some other breweries that he recommends going to. And Stefan looked at it and just started crossing them off and be like, shit, shit, <laughs> shit. And he said, go to these ones. Okay, that one's okay. 
And uh, then he wrote down a couple more. And so we, we spent the day going around to a couple little breweries in that area and just continued to have our minds blown by Franconian beer. Um, and then went to Bamberg and just, it, it just ended up being a really transformative experience. And so then maybe six months later or so, we went back um, to Bamberg, the whole crew from Denmark, my employer and everyone else who worked in the brewery. We went down there for uh, a conference, the Brau Bevial, and we stopped at Munzenbach before that um, on the way down. And I had been trying to get an internship there. I had sent a couple emails and never heard anything back. And so I mentioned it to my Danish friend and who speaks German. And he just started talking with Stefan in their little cafe as we're sitting there drinking mugs of beer. And they had a band there that was just singing German songs. And so we sang German songs with them. They had songbooks that you could mm -hmm. sing from. And it was crazy. But um, <laughs> he starts talking to him and, and Stefan just turns to me a moment later and says, yes, yes, we can do internship, you know, do an internship in April. You come stay with my family. And wow. so, yeah, when, when I finished up working in Denmark, so it's a very long story, but when I finished up working in Denmark, I went to uh, to Stefan's and I worked there for a week as an intern. And then I went to, uh, to Daniel's in France and they brew beer entirely differently. They both think that the way the other one makes beer is insane. Right. Um, and they think the way that I make beer is insane, but it, it was, yeah, it was an absolutely transformative experience. Um, the biggest part being seeing that there are many, many different ways to the top of the mountain and they're different mountains if you're trying to make different types of beer, but take people at their word. When, when someone says like, I don't know, I, I know a lot of American brewers and I was absolutely certainly this way um, where you'd read about the way that someone, a, a different culture makes a beer. Uh, you ask questions. Oh, you know, what temperature do you ferment at? Oh, we ferment this high. Oh, really? Oh, cool. Interesting. And you think, yeah, that's crazy. I'm not doing that. Oh, but I still want to make beer like them. And I, I realized that just take them entirely at their word. Like just, just do all the things that they do and see what happens and mm -hmm. try to try to think the way that they think about it. Like the, the mash pHs at, at some of these places were crazy. People were mashing at like five, nine. And I was thinking you can't, how, how is it going to convert? Like, this doesn't make sense. And I still don't know what the answer is scientifically mm -hmm. as a brewer, but I know that those beers are outstanding. And I know that I have yet to make a beer that good. Um, and so I'm just trying to, trying to take them at their word and try to think as much like those brewers when I make those types of beers. Um, so yeah, that was a, a hugely transformative experience. And then I moved back to the United States and uh, was unemployed for six months, and that was a <laughs> that was a bummer. Yeah. But um, Ander, yeah, Anders yeah. Kissmeyer has has attracted, you know, not not just one, um, you know, New England based brewer to to come out and and work with him, and then or to or to come to Denmark and do some work, and then return back to the states with with big plans to do their own thing. Obviously, that was Sean Hill, who uh, mm. was there a few years before you, but you know, you returned to the states. And did you have a plan at that point? Were there, you know, obviously unemployed for a few months there, but did you have the ultimate goal of opening your own establishment or did you want to go back into, you know, sort of pub brewing for somebody else? The, the goal. So when actually it was, it was the, the day that we were in Franconia, I had this kind of revelation, um, not to sound too, too uh, cheesy about it, but that, um, that my relationship with my now wife, Carolina, was more important than than working on opening this place with uh, my friend John in Boston because we didn't want to live in Boston forever as much as I absolutely love and miss New England. Um, Carolina didn't want to say, hey, we're opening a place here where, and we're here for 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, and I realized what was more important. And so I said, okay, I, I'm sorry, I can't do this, John. Um, and But we still, I still wanted to have our own place again. And so Caroline and I kind of batted around the idea for quite a while. And our original conception of it was as a tiny little cafe, like in the woods and we make one beer and serve food from our garden. Um, and that was kind of the original conception, but we, we didn't have a business plan. We kind of like knew what we wanted it to be. And so then when I moved out West, I started working on the business plan more seriously when I was unemployed and put it together and, and we, we both kind of it went from being, okay, Enlightenment was this thing that, that Ben did, um, and and we'd start a business, and uh, she would be a part of it. it. It went from that to this thing that we kind of organically created together. It We couldn't possibly call it Enlightenment anymore because 
it it's it's the two of us it's this synergy between us the, the way that it feels and the way that it looks and what the atmosphere is and what we're going to serve and what it kind of represents is something that is that is very much a um, both of us deeply involved it's not the beer happens to be a little bit more my side but it's very different from what enlightenment was in that sense um which was kind of uh despite getting lots and lots of help from lots of friends um was kind of a individual art project for, for lack of a better mm-hmm. term um so yeah so we we kind of put a plan together in 2017 and then started sh- trying to figure out how the hell we'd find the money and, and raise some money and then also uh started going to banks and we did that for six months, eight months, something like that. And we finally got a bank loan um, about two weeks before we got married last summer. So it ended up being, being, it took a lot off of our, uh, a lot off of our plate. And then since then we've been kind of building it, I, I guess to answer your question. Um, yeah. I knew even before going to Europe that I wanted to do this. Um, originally it was kind of with John and then it became this thing that Caroline and I wanted to do, but the pieces didn't really fall into place until I think late 2017 that we're like, okay, this is serious. And it didn't become, Hey, we're doing this until 2018. And how did you choose Bellingham? Well, Carolina had lived here, um, for, uh, quite a while. Um, she lived here when she went to college. Um, and then she went to the Peace Corps. And then when she moved back to the Peace Corps, she was living here as well. Um, and it was very near and dear to her heart. And I hadn't, uh, we had just come to visit here and, and always enjoyed it. Uh, it reminds me a lot of Burlington, Vermont as opposed to a lot of the West coast, which mm-hmm. I, I like, but it, it just feels very alien in a certain way coming from new England. Um, but this place, like it's, it's very pleasantly hippie and working class at the same time. And it's, it's on a big body of water and there's just a lot of interest in the arts and a lot of interest in beer culture, um, and all of that. Um, and so we, we hadn't really considered it, uh, because it just didn't make sense. It was much further away and the economics of everything didn't make sense to us at the time. Um, cause we had done a bunch of research on, uh, on pretty much the population and, and, uh, yeah, trying to figure out what would make sense for our business plan. Um, and it, it didn't really make sense. So we'd focused, uh, almost entirely on Portland. And then we came up here after kind of spinning our wheels for quite a while, we came up here um, and we started talking to James from Structures and a bunch of other people in town that weekend. And we told him what we were planning to do. And he got this kind of look in his eye and said, you know, this is this is a town that's really proud to be known as a beer town now. It's a destination. It's got a really vibrant beer culture. It's got wonderful breweries like Chuckanut and Wander in it. Um, do you do something that's different? You can fit right in. If you come here and just mm-hmm. do what everyone else is doing, well, what's the point? But Hey, you're talking about a, a a focus on on lots of farmhouse beer, including kind of farmhouse lagers. You're talking about doing a really cozy um, kind of cafe style place instead of a uh, instead of a, a big warehouse. And you're talking about doing a, a menu that's vegetarian, although we're not actively advertising that <laughs> a mm-hmm. whole lot. Um, that's really different, and I I think I think the place would really embrace that. And so. We also, yeah, we talked to a bunch of people around town and kind of told them about the idea. And they all said, yeah, yeah, here's the place to do it. And so we kind of recrunched the numbers and started looking at spaces. And then one space just kind of fell into our lap, which uh, we weren't expecting. Um, it just, it was being built out and we caught it while it was being built out. Um, and so we were able to modify what we needed. And then we got, once again, pretty arrogant and decided that, Oh, we could be our own general contractors because oh, it's just uh, tenant improvements. You know, not building the building from scratch or anything. Um, it turns out it's a little more complicated than that. Uh, but yeah, so that's that's how we ended up in Bellingham, and uh, still getting used to it. But <laughs> we we keep meeting just wonderful people. It's just a lot a lot of really cool people here, and and wonderful beer. Assuming you get to open sometime soon and things return to some form of normalcy that you can control. What is the so? What is your plan? What is your vision for the place? What are the types of beers that you want to brew and and sort of like just what is your what is your voice there? So we we've described the project as rustic lagers and farmhouse ales, um, and the way that we kind of have approached um, what we're offering is trying to keep a pretty good split between doing uh, a handful of lagers, two or three lagers, always keeping at least one saison or farmhouse ale on 
hopefully two, and then always having one hoppy beer on, a hoppy American beer, uh, just because we kind of have to. Um, and also, you know, I love IPA, so we shall also have that too. But we've we've kind of embraced a much more curated and um, and focused menu. So we we built a draft system with eight taps, and six of them are for us. One is for a cider, and one is for a guest. And maybe you know, a special event we could take over that last guest one or something. But our, our notion is I, nothing against having a big variety of beers, but we, we don't we don't want to have 20 beers offered. Um, we might have you know a bottle list of some uh, saisons that we we have available, but we, we want something that's much more narrowly focused. The idea being, hey, we want to make all three pint beers. We want to make beers that you can drink all day, and when you have your second one, and you're done with it. You you're sad that your glass is empty and you're ready for your third. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the best breweries that I went to and the, the places I really fell in love with in Europe, you either walked up to a window and they said, here's the beer today, or maybe there were, there were three choices. And you, I never felt like I was missing out. I never felt like, Oh, I wish they had another, another lager, another, another IPA or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, they were just beers that you never got tired of. And I'm not saying that, <laughs> that we can do that, um, that is the goal, um, and that's absolutely what we're striving for, is just really, really drinkable beers. Not beers that are are um, very light, per se, although we'll definitely be doing some of that, but beers that have lots of flavor, but also lots of balance, and are just, you don't get tired of drinking them. Um, and so it's, I know it's rather ambitious, <laughs> and again, kind of arrogant to think that we can do that, but that's that's really what the focus is. And we're also bringing in some of the, some of the beers that I really love from Enlightenment. So Right now we're opening with just clean saison, just because I haven't had time to uh, to start brewing mixed ferment. Um, but we're bringing back beers like Illumination that I really love, mm-hmm. and and modifying a bit from. Uh, so that was that was the beer that I used to make. Um, kind of I used to call the Farmhouse IPA. It's a American dry hop saison um, that was like six and a half percent, and I've kind of reinterpreted it and reimagined it after five years of not brewing it and mm-hmm. learning a hell of a lot uh, in Europe and 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 other places. Uh, brought down the alcohol, brought down the general hopping rate, and uh, made it a little bit more saison and a little bit less IPA. And it's it's a it's a different beer, and I love it even more. Um, and uh, last Friday we sat around with some other brewers, and I ended up drinking it until I could barely get home. So it's <laughs> it's uh, it's worked out in that sense. Um, I don't know. Yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question. It's a little bit more narrow of a focus than than a lot of breweries and, and what a lot of breweries that I've worked at. Um, but we're, we're trying to kind of focus on beers that are a little rougher around the edges in a pleasant way. Um, that are a little more rustic and that are just all day drinkers. After everything that's been going on in this entire journey, how does it feel to drink a beer that you brewed on a system that is your own? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, well, I mean, to be honest with you, other than Illumination, I haven't been thrilled with all my first batches. Um, I guess that's something that I didn't mention earlier on is that we did a whole bunch of our brewing in February. And uh, I mean, it's June now. So I've, I've dumped about five batches of beer that mm-hmm. just weren't going to make it to the finish line for opening. Um, but also that I had lots of nitpicky problems with. Um, and so... I not that I would necessarily dump them otherwise, but okay, they were really long in the tooth and I didn't like certain things about them because I'm still learning the system and still dialing it in. Um, so there's kind of a silver lining there, but it it's it's weird. Like Illumination is the only beer that I think that I've been like, I'm really pretty darn happy with this. Um, honestly, it's, it's it's very frustrating in that one of the most fulfilling things about Enlightenment was when things went well, when I made a beer that I really loved and uh people bought i could say hey like people have really helped me out but like i made this like i i worked 18 hours and didn't get paid and put the labels on by hand and helped design the labels and distributed it and i made this i made all of this um and when things didn't go well that that it was all my fault the buck stops at me i had totally failed and the same is true now um but on a much bigger scale. So like my first couple batches of lager beer, I found really harsh and I didn't and kind of uh, astringent. And I, 
I don't know. I've spent a lot of time beating myself up about it. Just why can't I figure this out? I, I picked out and designed the brew house essentially and designed how I'm going to make these beers. And I've been doing this long enough. I think I should be able to do this. And, uh, I don't know. A part of it, I think is being oversensitive, but I guess to answer your question, when I have something that I really like that I've made it, yeah, it's cloud nine, but it's, it's pretty rare that I feel that way. I spend most of my time hating the beer I make. To be honest, you sound like um, so many brewers that I know and so many brewers that I respect, especially in New England. It just seems to be almost a New England ethos of, uh, you know, I ask a question like that and you don't get like, oh, it feels great. It's wonderful. It's always like, well, I could have done better. I, here's the here's my own personal criticism. And uh, it's just kind of an amazing, an amazing reaction that I greatly respect in people because it is the folks who you know, are just content with their, their early work, uh, you know, as a writer, you know, you, Mm -hmm. it's rare that a first draft is something that is, is pure perfection. And and a lot Mm -hmm. of the beauty is in the editing process. And a lot of beauty is in change and manipulation and, and thoughtful contemplation about where things should be, as opposed to where they are. And for brewers, I greatly respect those who, you know, somebody like you referenced earlier, Dan Paquette, who you talk to him years into pretty things and ask him, you know, what he thought about, you know, his signature beer, Jack Door, mm-hmm. and he said, "Well, I think I'm getting close to getting it right." And he might <sighs> might have been fifty or a hundred batches in. He's like, "I'm, I'm getting close. I'm think I'm closing in on it." And you're just that that sort of attitude, you know, is is often foreign to to folks in the industry who are, you know, like you said, are, would have been more than happy to put things on and been perfectly happy with them and and move on. But I, it's it's an attitude I greatly respect. I appreciate that. I, I got to say, what, what one of the most frustrating parts about it, and where I don't know where to draw the line, is these are the beers we're opening with. This right. is, hey, everyone, here's your first impression of this new place in a town that already has 14 breweries. I, if I have problems with it, like to take the Dan example, like I have trouble with the idea of releasing the first three years of the beer. You know, if it took him three years, I think he's almost got it. I, it, it drives me crazy to release a beer that I'm like, I don't think it's great yet. Right. And people are going to have it. And, and it's not necessarily that I'm worried that like they're going to judge me and I'm going to feel bad. It's I, I, I already feel bad. I, I already know <laughs> that I can make a better beer. Um, I'm not really cared about what they think in that regard, but I am concerned that they're not going to come back for their third pint. And if I, they don't come I, back for the third pint. Then, then the, and we're not going to succeed. And I'm not going to keep having the opportunity. We're not going to be able to keep our doors open. We're not going to have the opportunity to keep working at perfecting it and getting closer to being what we actually want. So I don't know. I, I don't know. I had a conversation with James um, from Structures about it. And uh, I, I don't know. He, he pretty much said you're, you're beating yourself up quite a lot about it. You need to, to calm down a bit. Um, and also don't don't talk down your beer in front of people. Right. But I don't know. Like it's so weird serving something to someone that I think is imperfect, uh, or that there are problems with it that really bother me. I feel guilty. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't serve someone food that I think doesn't taste good if they came to my house. But um, but I, is it actually that you think these beers don't taste good, or they just don't hit the mark that you have set for yourself, the high mark? Because I think there's a distinction. I, 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 one, I, one informs the other. Uh, <laughs> like once I find out that I don't like it, like it hasn't hit the mark, then it tastes bad to me. Okay. Like then I'm like, all I can taste is what's wrong with it, or right. all I can taste is what it's lacking, and that. And I would me crazy. and I would t- and I would tell you as someone who has visited many many breweries in his day and many many breweries in their opening weeks and months, you know people are can you know people are pretty forgiving. In mm-hmm. I've been to plenty of breweries that made you know very successful breweries here in new england even that made pretty atrocious beer in their early days mm-hmm. uh and i've been pretty open about it um yes in, in talking <laughs> talking about these places that had that were making you know making straight up poison in some cases basically just stuff that was atrocious <laughs> to the nose and atrocious to the palate just objectively bad beer but yet they were you know opened at the right time with the right marketing mm-hmm. or whatever and they just you know killed it in their tap rooms yep. and did really well and it took years upon years upon years for them to get anywhere near to what was I what I would have you know said was a clean, you know, mm-hmm. decent tasting beer, let alone something that was very good. And you know the 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 populace, the drinking populace, was pretty forgiving. Now, mm-hmm. with 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 respect to you, you have infinitely more talent. And I'm not here to be the person to you know prop you up, but like you have infinitely more experience and talent than than 
anybody that I'm mentioning here or thinking about in mind. And I am, you know, I want the brewer to, to be someone who says, you know, I, I want, you know, I want to do better. I want to do better. I want to do better. I want, this isn't where I want it to be. But keep in mind that the beer to those people probably tastes really fucking good. And especially right about now. I think you are never going to find as forgiving an audience as you are going to find right now. Because speaking of someone who has not had a draft beer in three and a half months, I would take pretty much anything now, even if it was pure poison, and say, wow, I'm I'm going on untapped and this is getting four and a half stars. That's a good point. That's uh <laughs> so give yourself I hadn't, I hadn't give, thought of that perspective. <laughs> give yourself some time to ease into it and and to become, you know, the you know, to make everything the way you want it to be. Because yeah. I, I'm sure you're gonna get there. Well, you know, it's a funny thing. Um, I think the 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 desire to to make it perfect, the desire to to get it where where I want it, um, it, <laughs> it it's led to it's led to some some real craziness. Um, last week I had this very weird thing. I don't know if I had a cold or what, but I was tasting all of the beer like a week, like in just finishing up fermentation. Um, I was tasting the lager beers which were decocting. Um, we have a direct fire system, which is pretty weird, but I, mm-hmm. I got this notion that like I was getting this astringency and I was, that was just like linger and linger. And I could taste it in all of my beer all of a sudden. And I could, and I would just have a sip of it. And I was just like, everything's bitter. Everything is astringent. And I, I couldn't get it out of my head. I would, I would go home two hours later and I would be thinking about it. I could, I mean, I could still taste it. It's still there. And then I started tasting it in other beers okay. that weren't mine. And then it occurred to me, maybe you're losing your fucking mind. Yeah. And so then I uh, uh, last Friday, I, we invited um, some of the other brewers in the neighborhood over. And we were just having a socially distanced beer. And I grabbed some samples of the beer that was driving me nuts, the, first, the one that was driving me nuts the most, mm-hmm. and tasted it with them and got their feedback and everything. And then I was like, okay, so here's what I'm thinking. And they looked at me like I had three heads. Like, yeah. There's none of that. You're, you're nuts. Right. And so, so now like, don't get me wrong. Like there, there are many very valid criticisms of the beer and, but I'm, I'm wondering if, if being the GC on our construction, dealing with COVID, trying to get this place open, brewing the beers and trying to make them excellent, um, is leading to, uh, psychosis so i think that that that, i'm no doctor but i can confirm that i think that is exactly what's happening and i think the prescription here is you guys you guys need to be allowed to open you need to see (laughs) see that because as you know as a pub brewer you know the the main difference between that pub brewer, you know especially back in the old days and a production brewer was being able to get that immediate feedback over the bar from the consumer and yeah once you get that and those those consumers smile, clink glasses are happy and aren't spitting the beer back in your face, you're going to start to realize, okay, this, this might, this might be okay. But you have been on this extended process that is just, you know, that just got hyper extent. You know, everyone's got delays in construction or what have you, but here, this is beyond your control in so many ways. And, you know, beyond the, you know, beyond the understanding of anybody who's ever done business in any of our lifetimes, and you're you're just making your way through as best you can. So I think you, the prescription here is, yeah, you just need to you need to be able to open and you need to start being able to sell that beer to see that this model and the whole idea that you've been putting your heart and soul into for so long actually, you know, can come to fruition and, and, and start to work. Well, we're going to find out in two weeks. Um, you know, the one of the things I didn't mention that's also causing us a lot of anxiety is uh we bought, uh, you know, very much in- inspired by uh, time in Franconia. We were able to scrounge up 25 of the uh, the gravity kegs they use. It's okay. just um, little 20 liter guys. And our goal is to have gravity lager on pretty much every day. Um, whether it's so we're opening with two loggers, uh, a pale and an amber lager, um, and uh, you always have one of them available. And I am terrified that people are gonna be like, "What the hell is this? Like, I, I don't, I don't want beer from that's." slightly warmer and less carbonating comes out of that funny little keg every everyone um, i'm going to stop you right there everyone's going to want that like i said just like a, <laughs> just like a half of weizen walking through uh you know a beer garden and turning every head the second that that keg comes out i can tell you from experience from germany to the united states to canada wherever i'm at second that keg comes out every head turns and everyone wants some of that so that is <laughs> I, I wouldn't worry too much about it. i think that was okay. a good purchase 
All right. Yeah. I don't know. We, I'm not sure if you noticed, we spend a lot of time worrying. Yes. That's and And that's great. That'll make, that'll make the final product even better. I, you know, I hope to see you sometime soon. I'm not sure when that's going to be at this point. I would love to get out there and, and see what you've done with the place and, and enjoy the beers that you're, you're putting on. And I, and I can't wait to hear about how the opening goes and how much people love it. I, you know, you've got a great history. I anticipate nothing but, but great success. And I'm hoping that, you know, sometime very soon here, you're just going to be sit back, realize all that you've achieved as, you know, has come true. And, you know, that you're hitting the beers exactly as you want them, that the place is popping and that people are, people are loving your beer. I don't think they'll ever be exactly as I want them. <laughs> but I appreciate, I appreciate the notion. That sounds lovely. Thanks for listening to the Beer Edge podcast. My partner, John Hall, and I work hard to bring you fresh and insightful content related to the ever-changing world of craft beer. We're passionate about beer and independent journalism. If you're interested in supporting Beer Edge, visit our website, beeredge.com, which is updated regularly with new content, interviews, and articles. Please also consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your episodes. You can also subscribe to the Beer Edge newsletter on our website. Is there anyone you think that we should be talking to? Please drop us a line at andy at beeredge.com with your thoughts. Thanks for your support.